0: There's a lot of evidence that being around entrepreneurs makes it more likely that you start a business. There's not much evidence that being around other entrepreneurs makes you more likely to start a successful business.
1: Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Matt Clancy on the show. Matt is an economist specializing in science and innovation. For the last few years, he has been writing a popular living literature review on these topics. You can access this incredible resource at the website and newsletter, New Things Under the Sun. Matt is currently a research fellow at Open Philanthropy, where he works on this and related projects. He's also a senior fellow at the Institute for Progress and formerly an assistant teaching professor of economics at the Iowa State University. Welcome to the show, Matt. Uh, thanks for having me. So we today's design is a little bit different. We want to use uh, Matt's website or his articles as a guideline for the show today. So we will be grabbing some interesting, interesting articles. Matt will sum them up for us. And then I'll be asking some questions and relate them more to corporate innovation and innovation management in general and things we can we can learn and adopt from uh from these insights right sounds great so one interesting article is the idea of being an entrepreneur and we'll be linking all the all the articles in the show notes the idea of being an entrepreneur can you tell us a bit about this article
0: sure so This article and another article, I think called Entrepreneurship is Contagious, are kind of a pair. And what they're trying to sort of jointly discuss is where does the sort of motivation and drive to become an entrepreneur come from? Obviously, it can come from lots of different places, but this focuses on kind of the notion that the idea that you can be an entrepreneur is not something that you might normally consider people just there are a million options for what you can do with your life and most people don't actually run through the list of a million different options and then pick the one they think is best instead people kind of consider a more circumscribed set one of the options in that set might be i should start my own business i should be an entrepreneur and how does that what differentiates people who sort of consider that from people who don't? And the two pieces kind of try to argue being around people like you who are entrepreneurs kind of plants implants that idea. So I'm an economist, and we're used to sort of thinking of people as just being kind of rational and weighing costs and benefits. And so these articles were sort of taking a different uh, tack and say... Before you can even get to that stage where you're weighing the costs and benefits, you kind of have to be thinking about this option. It it can't be unthinkable for for you in the sense that you don't even think of it. And so there's kind of five different arguments that the two articles jointly cover, and they look at a lot of different academic literature to make that point. So the first argument is just this observation that entrepreneurs tend to be found in these sort of social clusters. So... If you're an academic scientist, there's a paper, uh, Marx and Hsu, and you've discovered something new. And some other group of scientists have discovered roughly the same idea. They have this clever way of identifying when two scientist groups make similar ideas around the same time. And then that lets them compare. One group decides to commercialize the idea, one group doesn't. And what are some of the differences between these two scientists? Because the idea is pretty similar. They're both hopefully... Uh, equally amenable to being commercialized. So what's the difference between these two groups? And it turns out one of the differences that matters is if the scientist who commercializes the idea has previously worked with entrepreneurs, actually serial entrepreneurs. So it's not that they themselves have a history of entrepreneurship, but they've been around people who've done this. That kind of seems like it. Uh, So that's one piece of evidence that these guys come in clusters, but there's a lot more. People have done studies of the workplace. So if you work with more co-workers who have started a business in the past, uh, you're more likely to go on to start a business yourself. And there's studies from Denmark and the USA that that look at that. And people have done similar things looking at sort of the community level. So if you're in a community with a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, you're more likely to go on and, and sort of start a business in the future yourself. So that's sort of argument one, is just these guys are found in clusters together. Now, that could be because they're transmitting this idea that you can be an entrepreneur to each other. But there's a lot of other reasons that entrepreneurs might cluster together. They might just choose to uh, work at the same kind of companies because maybe there's the right kind of entrepreneurial uh, opportunities in this field and they want to get a, a leg in this field, whatever. So that's why it's only one of five arguments. The second argument is some studies that try to look at kind of random, like close to an experimental setup where we like randomly put some people with entrepreneurs and put other people who are not, uh, otherwise different. Uh, you know, we just randomly put some with entrepreneurs and some with don't, uh, some without entrepreneurs. There's a study that looked at students in a class project getting mentored. And some of the students were randomly paired with a mentor who was an entrepreneur. And some were randomly paired with a student who, uh, wasn't an entrepreneur, but was just somebody in the same industry. The students who are paired with the entrepreneur, two years, you know, they they track them after they graduate, and they're more likely to to join a startup. Uh, there's another study that looks at people who uh, are scientists, and they have to go do their postdoc, their postdoctoral training, and the paper makes a lot of effort to sort of show that when postdocs are deciding who they want to work with, they don't really think much about if this guy's an entrepreneur. They can read their mm-hmm autobiographies they can do some statistical tests people basically want to work with scientists who work on the topics they want to work on who maybe live in the right area who have a lot of prestige in the field so on they don't necessarily think of is this guy also an entrepreneur but it turns out if you end up working with a postdoc mentor who has patents you're a lot more likely to get patents later in life too it's like this idea was implanted uh the last study is about swedish adoptees and so let me go ahead
1: let me pause it just there and patents then translate a measure for innovation yeah
0: to- yeah but from an academics perspective like probably most academics don't get a patent the ones who do get a patent are more likely to have a commercial orientation than the ones who don't but i i take i yeah. totally take your point that good you know we shouldn't say there's a, these two things are synonymous um another study though looked. Swedish adoptees. If you get adopted by an entrepreneur, you're more likely to become an entrepreneur, uh, and the effect is even stronger than if your like biological parent is an is an entrepreneur. So that's kind of interesting too. Uh, so we've got these guys clustering. Could, could, just just for myself,
1: could you could you say it again? Like, so yeah. You... So there's
0: this study. They've got like four thousand Swedish adoptees, and they know who the birth parents are, and they know who the adoptive parents are, and they uh, they look to see if the parents are entrepreneurs what's the probability the kids grow up to become entrepreneurs if the kid has got a birth parent who's an entrepreneur but they don't they don't they're not raised by that parent they have like a four percent higher chance of becoming a entrepreneur or maybe it's four percent of the time they become entrepreneurs but if they're raised by an adoptive parent who's an entrepreneur it's like twice as high eight percent or something no way yeah yeah it's interesting And there's more too. So the third kind of argument ties back to some of these earlier papers, which is it's not just being around entrepreneurs, but it seems like this effect is a lot stronger if the entrepreneurs are kind of similar to you in some salient way. So if we go back to that adoption study, uh, if you're a boy, it matters a lot more if your father is an entrepreneur than if your mother. If you're a girl, If your mother's an entrepreneur, you're more likely to become an entrepreneur yourself. But if your father's an entrepreneur, has no effect actually. Um, If you look at these studies of coworkers, similar kinds of things, where you know if the coworkers are uh, more similar, you you know the effect is stronger. So they've done studies of like, um, I work for a startup. Um, Obviously, if I work for a startup, I'm working with an entrepreneur, the person who started the startup. But if that founder is a woman and I'm a woman, the effect is a lot stronger that I go on to start my own business. If she's a mother and I'm a mother, it's a stronger still effect. If she's not a mother and I'm not a mother, then that is an effect. If we have the same background, if we come from similar regions. So it's kind of like consistent with this idea that I'm thinking, hey, someone like me could do this. Um, There's even a study that looked at hedge fund managers who, Go out and strike out and, on their own and start their own hedge fund, and the uh, kinds of factors associated with them deciding to do that. And uh, one of them is if you're alumni, so people you went to university with, if they go on, if they're doing that kind of thing, you're more likely to do it too. And that's kind of interesting because you know you made the decision to go to this university a long time ago, uh, but they're people you know, you kind of they're in the same social sort of circle. So that's uh, the third argument is that, you know, the similarity of the person seems to matter a lot. That's uh, the amazing. fourth one, I know, is well, I think this is really interesting stuff. Uh, fourth argument is if this is really about you kind of having the idea, putting it inside your, your choice set and then considering it, then it's kind of a situation where you only really need to hear the idea once. And then after that. It doesn't necessarily. It's not going to matter that much if you hear it again and again and again. So all of these studies, for example, where you pair a student with a mentor who's an entrepreneur versus not an entrepreneur, or if you're working with coworkers who are more entrepreneurial, uh, these kinds of studies. One group that these studies don't work on is the children of entrepreneurs. So, if I if my dad was a entrepreneur, it doesn't seem to matter if I uh, work with a lot of entrepreneurs, it doesn't affect my rate of starting my own business. It's kind of like my interpretation of this result is I, I, I was already considering that being around other entrepreneurs didn't give me any new information about this is the kind of path you could do with your life. Um, another kind of study that suggests that I think is the famous study of Harvard business school students. So at Harvard business school, Students get uh, divided up into these study sections, and you spend all your time with these students. You take all the classes together. You form a lot of bonds with these people, and these study sections are formed not randomly. Like the Harvard tries to sort of put people in interesting groups that are kind of, uh, you know, have a bunch of different backgrounds, but they don't sort people based on entrepreneurship. And the upshot is some people get sorted into a group where their classmates have formed businesses in the past. You know, maybe 10% of them have previously owned a business. And other students end up in groups where nobody has previously operated their own business. And all the studies I've said so far, we would predict the guys who end up in a study in a surrounded by classmates who previously ran businesses would be more likely to start businesses. But they don't, they don't actually find that effect in this study. They find that. It's actually the reverse. The people who are in Harvard Business School, if you're around other former ex entrepreneurs, you're less likely to start a business. So, my interpretation of that is that. Uh, they actually, one, know how hot it is. Well, that's actually the main uh, result the learner and Mal the, the authors, kind of propose is that uh, they kind of provide some evidence that having these other entrepreneurial students around, uh, it mostly serves to sort of shoot down bad ideas. Like the people who don't have these uh, entrepreneurial students around, they do, they found more businesses, but they're like businesses that are more likely to fail. And the ones who are around lots of ex-entrepreneurs, they found less businesses, but the ones that succeed are more likely, the ones that found businesses are more likely to succeed. So my interpretation though, is like, if you're at Harvard business school, you've probably got the idea in the back of your mind, like, maybe I'll start my own business you don't need to be around these other harvard business school students be like oh maybe i could do it too you don't really need that boost of confidence and then so i said there were five arguments the fifth one is i'll say just really quick is just you can ask the entrepreneurs well, you know what was important in your decision to be an entrepreneur and a big share of them i think it was like more than half say having an entrepreneurial role model who is a family member or friend was either somewhat or very important in their decision. And there's even some studies that have tried to sort of pin that down and like see if, you know, they've looked to show that uh, if you're around a lot of entrepreneurial coworkers, you're more likely to found a business than people who weren't. And you're more likely to report role models were important. So that was my five arguments for kind of the case that, uh, you know, we pick up what we think are options for your life from. options we see other people embracing and entrepreneurship is not really any different and it's not sort of a default thing but if you're around people who do it then then yeah you might consider it
1: i'm trying to to relate the findings to either large organizations or you know ecosystem building so when what does this mean for policy decision making for states or countries i think is something we could yeah
0: yeah so i think at the level of a state or a country this is getting more speculative so everything i said before i've got like yeah five or six studies but yeah the implications uh i'll I'll speculate a little bit and i don't think they're like crazy speculations but i think one of them is that you know these uh, regional clusters where you have lots of entrepreneurs like This is one reason why Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley, right? It's in the air. It's sort of in the city's culture. People are around lots of people who founded businesses. And so people expect, uh, that's what you, that's what you're going to do. And if you're in that sense, having lots of entrepreneurs can sort of be this sort of self-propelling cycle, right? Where once you have enough, they kind of carry that culture forward and you don't, uh, you know, you don't need to do as much work to foster it as a place that maybe uh, doesn't have that kind of uh, group of entrepreneurs to begin with. So that's one thing. And another is like at what? the level of an organization. You know, a lot of times people talk about: Do we have a culture of innovating in this firm? Or, uh, and I think this is kind of getting at a similar idea. Like, do you see your coworkers? innovating, trying new things. And I mean, entrepreneurship and innovation are not exactly the same, but they're like close cousins. They're both kind of recognizing that the given set of options to solve a problem is maybe not good enough. And you're going to try and create something new that's sort of outside the package. So if I, you know, I'm not happy with the quality of my business options. Instead, I'm going to start my own, or I'm not happy with the quality of the solutions to some problem. Uh, some people, they consider, they look at the options and they pick which they think is the best one. Other people have the insight that you know they they sort of think beyond that and say, uh, I'm not happy with any of these, and there's a better way to do it. And I think that that's the yeah, kind and- of idea that's not a default. And being around people who do that can can kind of bring it into your option set,
1: yeah, yeah, and if that doesn't happen, we know that people with an entrepreneurial drive uh, leave companies if they can't fulfill that desire to make things better as you as you write in the article. And if that doesn't get fostered, we see organizations lose good people,
0: yeah, I could um, see that. I mean, this is argument arguing kind of that entrepreneurial types they've sort of they've got they've been entrepreneur pilled or something so they see they can see problems that other people kind of just accept as like uh that's just the way life is and you make the best of it and other people say like I don't want to just make the best of it. I want to try to solve that problem and so maybe maybe it's hard to uh, maybe maybe it is harder to retain people like that if you don't give them the space to to try to solve those problems and you just oh, yeah want for sure them to accept it yeah.
1: I would like to try and um, uh, talk more about what this can mean for for policy making right for for um yeah for politicians and departments and I should take a step take a step back and maybe help me to understand two things i might I might put two things out there and see and and I've got one question the reason why we even want all this entrepreneurial activity in the first place from a political perspective is usually assumed economic gain like standard of living for society as a whole the the individual there doesn't really doesn't really matter i would oh talking about unsubstantiated claims uh, i'm i'm that's me right well, now i mean right? i think you're just, just trying to sort of <laughs>
0: are, you could say this is we try to promote entrepreneurship because we think it's sort of good for the community not necessarily because we think it's good for right. the entrepreneur
1: right yeah. that's what i'm claiming you you say entrepreneurship is contagious i say it can be addictive so one could go very far now and um, yeah by by fostering entrepreneurship <laughs> it's uh, you know can be quite harmful to certain individuals. Now, but on the other hand, obviously I am I'm thinking a lot about how can we foster um innovation ecosystems, right? And let's spend a lot of time thinking about it and, and doing it. So I'm not against it. But and that's maybe where my question where my question lies before continuing with this so the the Harvard group that was more likely to be actually successful i think that might be the lesson like we don't want necessarily everybody to have a goal i think for some people it's emotionally actually quite difficult and they don't have to i think not everybody has to write or doesn't you know not everybody has to have the psychological makeup also of going through this and dealing with all that uncertainty um, the same for corporates, not everybody I think has to innovate and has to go through this for some people it is just it is just um yeah, emotionally actually quite hard, right So I would love to see how we can get to to something here that makes sense. <laughs> I've mean putting this out no. like how can we how can we come up with smart policies that don't necessarily wanting everybody to be an entrepreneur right like how do we have those groups and and foster those those clusters that at the end are also successful in the output or more likely to be successful right and um therefore yeah also most likely better for the individuals that was a long sorry that was a long uh...
0: no no i mean one finding from these studies that I didn't emphasize, because it's not directly related to my argument, but it's quite related to yours, is an alternative theory is being around entrepreneurs teaches me entrepreneur skills. So I was always considering it, Mm. but I kind of was mentored by entrepreneurs about how to be a good entrepreneur, and that made the benefits tick up above the costs. So that's an alternative story. And a lot of papers have looked at that and they find very little evidence of that. There's, there's a lot of evidence that being around entrepreneurs makes it more likely that you start a business. There's not much evidence that being around other entrepreneurs makes you more likely to start a successful business. So it's kind of, in some evidence, it's not very strong. Like it's, it's hard to do good statistics on this because, you know, if I have, a group of a thousand people and four percent of them decide to be an entrepreneur well that's 40 people now if i want to see which of them are good entrepreneurs but which are are and which are less good instead of having a sample of a thousand and trying to pick out 40 i now i have a sample of 40 and i'm trying to like look within that so it's hard to do this statistically but the evidence they have in these studies finds kind of the opposite result is not uncommon to find that the kind of people who are sort of pulled into entrepreneurship by being around Peers who are entrepreneurs are often less successful entrepreneurs. So, you know, that speaks to what you're saying that we're, con- you know, if you think of entrepreneurship as contagious and maybe we think the social benefits are high enough that uh, we want to encourage this, but we need to recognize that maybe it's bad for individuals and maybe there are policies uh, to support the kind of people who are doing something that we think is good for society, but risky for their own personal well-being i don't know what that yeah. is like social safety nets but if it's emotional and psychological yeah. maybe it's yeah, building yeah. a community of of people who, who've been through similar things uh but yeah, we're talking about speculation here too
1: yeah yeah i'd love to i'd love to speculate a little bit i guess <laughs> yeah yeah that's the fun
0: of a podcast right
1: yeah so so that's very interesting did you say there that there was basically no skill transfer, or if there were maybe... Is is that what you said? Did you say that we didn't find a lot of the assumed skill transfer by entrepreneurs just hanging out together? Is that right? I mean, the
0: kinds of studies that I've talked to, which are not necessarily like explicitly designed to be studying how well can you teach entrepreneurial skills. They're like, you know, right. did I have coworkers who were entrepreneurs? Uh, did I have a founder who was like me? So possibly they're being inspired, but they're not being mentored, but it could be that we just don't know. Mm-hmm. We just don't ob- okay. observe what's happening. Um, but in these cases there's, you know, it's consistent with the idea that there were, there's some people who've Think they'll be really good at entrepreneurship, and they decide to go into it. There's other people who are never thinking about it. Maybe it would. Maybe it's not a good a, a good fit for them. Uh, they haven't thought much about it. They see people like them doing it. They get pulled in, but they're kind of newbies. They haven't given a lot of thought. It wasn't something that they were so obviously good at that they had already considered it. And the evidence is at least consistent with with that kind of story that they don't have outcomes that are as good as people who. We're always going to be entrepreneurs, no matter what the rest of the world uh, is doing.
1: Yeah. Mm. Mm. So it might be unreasonable as a goal, let's say for a city to reach beyond that part of the population that, as you say, was always going to be or had 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 whatever characteristics to start a business anyway. Is that would that be like if we could come up with this number, right? Let's say. 2.35% of <laughs> the population yeah. is a reasonable target. I don't know how how we could, but then... It's a thing to consider, but the way I would sort of think
0: about it is, I'm just making numbers up here, but suppose, like you said, there's some 5% of the city that's like core entrepreneurial. They, they just want to be their own boss, whatever you think is important, and they're always going to do it, and maybe they succeed. What do you think? Like 20% of the time, who knows what. Then there's the people that would who be great. only... I know. Then there's the group of people who, who only would do it if if they had sort of inspiration. If they meet, if they have a friend who's an entrepreneur, uh, maybe they only see succeed succeed like ten percent of the time. So they're half as as effective.
1: Mm.
0: You know, it that becomes a question of does the policymaker think that that's a good you know drawing that person in is better than just not having an entrepreneur, right? Like, um, and the more entrepreneurs we have, the more kind of self-propelling they are, and it's the kind of thing where maybe we think we want to, even though most people will fail, the really big successes are sort of big enough that they justify all the failures. As long as you have good policies to sort of take care of those people who are sort of uh, taking the shot for all the rest of us and uh, and
1: have an unlikely shot at succeeding, maybe. Well, let me see if if, if this makes sense. Not that I've got data on that, but is, is the assumption reasonable or not? So we could say as a policymaker, we could say, okay, we want more. Because if we have more, it will spit out, you know, some of those were successful. Yeah. It's pretty, you know, pretty simple. Or do we want less? I.e. filter better if we can, and then put more resources into supporting them. Like I guess those are the two those are the two things you can really work with, right?
0: That's right. So you can talk about like talent selection basically. Right. And um, I don't know that much about how well oh, we idea. are at, a, at at talent or idea selection for sort of entrepreneurship um, innovation. You know, I think that's like a very active thing that people are thinking a lot about is like, how can sure. we spot good ideas? How can we spot talented people early and give them resources? Um, and that's totally to the extent you think that's possible, then yeah, that's like way better than just sort of targeting everybody and having a lot of you know if you can if you only have a finite number of resources, of course you should try to give it to the people you think are most likely to succeed but that policy depends on your being able to do a pretty good job of picking or at least a better than than random chance of picking these people and I don't know. I don't know how well people work on. I mean, there's that's what VC is trying to do, right? Uh, a lot in.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. You know, that's what we do. You know, like mm-hmm. no doubt, like trying to quantify yep. better the most likely, you know, chance of success and <sighs> and so on. But yeah, I find it. I find it a lot more complicated. From you know, it is arguably a lot more complicated from um, from a state policy perspective or like a country policy perspective, right? Like. Yeah. Fostering, fostering entrepreneurship is is not easy. Um, right. Putting resources somewhere is, is not easy. It's just not. Um, right. Like in Australia we don't like <laughs> I just recorded a, a podcast with somebody uh, with a journalist here from Innovation Oz on um, the innovation metrics review. so looking at the the way Australia measures innovation and um are these indicators accurate and mm-hmm. you know should we change them and so on and the study was uh, commissioned in i believe 2017. it was done in 1819 and was released september this year mm-hmm. 2022. right so if this is if this is the the base for decision making then the spirit of move fast and break <laughs>
0: yeah
1: uh you know you know the next word i don't know yeah. then yeah that's so we don't really have good <laughs> it starts there and then and then the question of where do you where do you make appropriate interventions and this is like this is the, the federal level but you know these measures should ideally also be adopted by the state so you have congruent measures
0: well there's this um you know so in economics I don't know if this is the exact terminology, but we might call it like bottlenecks and, you know, you got to focus on the bottlenecks. That's right. And there's, um, Danny Roderick is this Turkish economist and he's done a lot of work on development economics. So, you know, moving poorer countries to being richer countries. And his whole approach is, um, identify the bottlenecks in a particular country and sort of, that's what you focus on. It's not like you have a package of this is what an ideal country's, um, policy regime should be it's going to vary for every country and yeah. you have finite political resources finite you know economic and you need to put them on the bottleneck and then the bottleneck changes because if you if you successfully solve that problem there's going to be some new one that you have to pivot to so you always have to kind of be adapting and and moving yeah. and I imagine the same thing happens uh when you're trying to foster an entrepreneurial ecosystem you got to identify what's the bottleneck in my community and and focus on yeah that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's interesting because it does seem like, you know, you said earlier entrepreneurship is sort of contagious sometimes. And it's like, uh, you kind of go through a one way door where once you get the entrepreneurship bug, maybe, uh, you want to keep doing it. And that kind of speaks to you prefer it to the alternative, but it's interesting. It's like, uh, uh, any other change that's sort of irreversible and sort of changes your values a little bit. Like, um, Mm. I don't know. Like having kids is is the same way, right? Like uh, before you have them and after you have them, you, you've got very different values maybe, but you wouldn't go yeah. back.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You identify real risks and, and we should have to the best of our ability policy or other kind of support networks. Because when you look over like a long term, like 50, 100 years, you um, there's a big difference between having a society that has economic growth, which comes from entrepreneurship, innovation, all that stuff, and one that doesn't. and you know, a stagnating place is not a great place to be either. Uh, right. And, but I totally agree that uh, you don't want to just uh, build your uh, build a nice life for your grandkids over, you know, the bodies of their grandparents or whatever. so
1: yeah, cool. i I think the other part is to translate this more for corporate. Uh, to what degree this contagiousness actually actually works. Uh,
0: I, within companies, I'm not so sure about, but going back to this question about sort of economic growth versus not economic growth, um, a lot of these ideas that I'm kind of drawing on are closely related to the ideas of this economic historian named Anton Haus, who's over in the UK. And he writes about the Industrial Revolution and he's, he has this view that sort of something like this contagion effect was an important driver of the Industrial Revolution, which was sort of a, a hinge point in history, right? Like uh, things didn't change much from generation to generation before then. And then they did afterwards. And he's he's got research uh, that he's working on sort of showing the famous inventors of the Industrial Revolution. You know, they often knew other inventors and kind of consistent with this idea that they Um, The social idea of an improving mentality, as they called it back then, uh, was kind of learned from your peers. And as it became diffused through Britain, it kind of changed people's attitudes from sort of acceptance of the status quo to a belief, at least among some people, that we could find new and better ways to do things. you're more likely to become an entrepreneur if there's more people like you to be an entrepreneur but that can kind of trap entrepreneurship in sort of a narrow demographic and we actually i think we have pretty good evidence that this has been a problem um in the united states for example yeah you can see this most easily in gender cuz gender is just an easy thing to study compared to sort of other demographics but you know women are a lot less likely to be for example, inventors listed on patents to come back to patents. And um, that kind of thing matters because the the topics that people choose to work on, uh, whether they're academic researchers or inventors inventing new products, is related to their background and sort of their own information that they bring with them from their own life. Um, I've got an article called Gender and What Gets Research that really digs into this on the question of of gender. And it looks at, for example, inventors of biomedical innovations that get patented. Um, All male teams are a lot more likely to focus on diseases that affect men and a lot less likely to focus on inventions that affect women. All women teams are the reverse. But As more women entered the biomedical invention sort of field, those differences began to lessen. So all male teams became more likely to work on diseases that affected women. Wow, You have similar stuff in, in academia where in again, sort of biology, there's something called like a, I think it's called a gender and sex analysis where when you're doing some kind of, uh, Biological, you know, biomedical paper. You can do an analysis about how does the efficacy of this thing vary across genders and, and so on. Because you know, you might need, you know, it might affect people differently. The likelihood that somebody thinks of doing that is a lot higher if they're uh, a woman. But if you're in a field where there's a lot of women, like you're in a little narrow field, and you're a man, you're a lot more likely to sort of um, include one of these things. So, the diversity of the field kind of affects. Not just it it affects what get invent what gets invented not only because the everybody invents to their own type, but it also affects what you kind of consider uh, and what factors you you might uh, decide to work on, even if that's not your your type, not your gender. So, like I guess one really clear example is this really cool study about what happened to the research topics of academics who were working at universities back in the USA in the 1960s that went co-ed. And so they started admitting female students and they often started hiring more female faculty and so on. And after that change happened, it was staggered across time. So you could kind of compare the universities that had gone co-ed to the ones that hadn't, and you could kind of, uh, you have a nice kind of control and comparison group. And the universities that went co ed, they started to do more work on you know, uh, topics related to gender. And it wasn't just because they hired female faculty who work, worked on these topics. It was also the sort of men who had always been there. They started working on these different topics when they were, were around a uh, more diverse group of people, basically. And there's some studies that find similar things on um, sort of your income background. So, like, if you come from a uh, you know, a, a lower income group. You're more likely to invent. Uh, I think this was like inventions, but it might have been found companies that sell products that you know sell to those markets and so on. So basically, the upshot is we have this society. It has all these different needs for research for inventions. It has all these unmet problems, unsolved problems, and big surprise: the people who are most likely to sort of cater to the problems of a certain group are inventors from that group. But if those people become represented, in the sort of broader invention system and they've got a voice they're not the only people addressing that constituency anymore
1: yeah i think that's great so and that's translates really well to to growth i guess you know just thinking about a company that you know wants to innovate for growth rather than right. of you know, other objectives um i think that's pretty i think that should should reinforce some um yeah ways of ways of working and 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 methods and you know from co-design to making sure you have diverse uh, innovation teams so uh, i think that's that's um that translates really well to further to further support that mm-hmm. you know that i'm already what i'm what i'm already preaching so it serves my bias really well thank you
0: <laughs> always happy to serve your biases
1: <laughs> <laughs> great should we jump to another article? Like we're sure, yeah, yeah, cool, yeah. That's the all clustering week uh, on this podcast. Otherwise, yeah, it's good. I we could you know this is this is yeah this is natural. You can naturally go so many down so many rabbit holes and everywhere from from this one, right? Yeah, I thought I thought it was a really good start too. Yeah, yeah, really good to start with that. Thank you. Yeah, the next one is uh, free knowledge and innovation. So, the how the access to libraries boost local patent rates. So, how access to Wikipedia shapes science. So that's 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 the uh, that's the you know the sentence on there. So. Yeah tell us, tell us something about tell us something about that so the what's the general idea here and and what are the general findings that um, free knowledge leads to more innovation
0: Yeah so so earlier we were talking about how there could be lots of different bottlenecks to innovating one of them might be are there people who are thinking about being entrepreneurs another potential bottleneck is do the people who are Open to innovating, inventing new things. Do they have good knowledge? Uh, Can they apply ideas other people have developed elsewhere to solve new problems? And so, one way you can get at this is to look at the access to information. There's three studies that I looked at in this uh, article called "Free Knowledge and Innovation." One was looking at the rollout of public libraries in the United States in the 1900s and 1800s by uh, by Carnegie. It's a study where basically they had this really unusual situation where there were, uh, you know, Carnegie paid for tons of libraries across the United States in these small towns. I grew up in Iowa City, and we have one of Carnegie's libraries. And what you want to do is you want to sort of see what what's the effect of having access to a library versus not having access. But it's a challenging problem because the people who are going to apply to get a library, they're there's some kind of unmet need, right? They felt like they needed a library. And so maybe there's people there who always would have wanted to invent whether they got the library or not. And if we compare that to people who didn't get a library because they never even applied, maybe these people are just, you know, they were never going to invent. They're just not interested in this kind of thing. So what this paper does, that's pretty smart is it identifies there was like 200 towns that applied for a library. Carnegie said, yes, you're going to get a library, but then there was these there was this sort of scandal as i understand it carnegie put down this strike really violently and so 200 towns basically said we don't want the money anymore we want nothing to do with you carnegie and then other towns continued to take the money because they were like well we still want a library and so what this paper does is it compares the people so now we've got only people who applied for and they they got their they were going to get a library but half, you know some group of them didn't get a library because they were too offended, and the other half did, and so they're not identical. Uh, like, w- but we hope that the ability to take, you know, this moral stand is not necessarily correlated with your inherent interest in patenting and inventing. And then they look at patents because that's the that's the only kind of innovation uh, metric they have available back in the 1900s, really. But upshot I is, a f- I have a feeling the people who got for the library. The sorry, people for interrupting library, you. Got- I think
1: we have sorry for interrupting you there i think we have to we just have to have a separate episode just on patents so we can always yeah. pluck that every time sorry could you please say that again like you're yeah I yeah so, partially forgive me no problem
0: uh we've got two studies that are going to have patents here so if you don't like and you know my take on patents there's signal and there's noise there's a lot of noise there's some signal in there it's worth looking at but you want to mm. Always to the best of your ability, complement it with other metrics. We're not going to be able to really do that in these studies, except for the Wikipedia one, which is a little different. But that caveat aside, the guys who get a library, they have like 10% more patents than the ones who didn't. Then in the 1970s, there's another study. This one looked at actually patent depository libraries. So these are actually, it's not a new building. As my understanding, it's like a collection of patents that gets updated. So you're an official place, official repository of Patents, because back in the 70s, there's no internet. You can't go to Google and figure out what the patents are. Nice. You have to have a place to actually read them. And they had these things called patent depository libraries where you could go read patents. And back in the 70s, they sort of said, we need to, there's not enough of these throughout the country. This is again the United States. And so there was this big push to try to get at least one of these libraries in every state. And what this study did is it again sort of tried to see. We want to compare people who got one to towns that are pretty similar, but they didn't get one. And what they did this time is they looked at federal depository libraries, which is like a library that is a repository for all sort of the federal regulations and laws because these already existed. And these were the candidates to be also given access to patents. And so they compare these federal depository libraries who got a patent deposit sort of arrangement to the ones who didn't. And they look at what happens in the 15 miles around it. Again, pretty similar thing. Uh, if you get one of these if you're within 15 minute miles of one of these patent depository libraries, you patent, I think it was like 20% more than the guys who have one of these federal depository libraries that didn't get a patent thing. And this study does some really interesting stuff to try to document that it's it's really because people are going to these libraries and reading the patents. <laughs> they they sort of show that the effect is biggest for sort of small firms or individual inventors who we imagine don't have easy access to get to learn about this stuff in an alternative way. Uh, the effect is strongest for chemistry patents, which the paper claims were the patents that sort of disclosed the most information. They actually show you the chemical structure. Uh, right. And uh, they have this really interesting sort of text analysis thing where they look for patents that introduce a new word that's never been. In any patent before, like the word "internet" was in, uh, you know, was in some patent for the first time. I think it was in 1990 in New Hampshire and Maine, because I recently read this uh, uh, this piece. Uh, mm. So that was the first time the word "internet" appeared in a patent, right? And then they look at words that have been around, but maybe they're not, uh, they haven't been around. Nobody has invented with them in your community. So I'm from Des Moines, Iowa. We have a patent depository library. And because I just read this thing, I know that the first patent from Des Moines mentioning the word internet was like in 2011 or something. Okay. Seems very late to me. This is in the title, not anywhere in the patent. So that's that's one thing. Anyway, and they look through the whole patent. So anyway, the, the idea is if you're reading the patents and learning, that should affect your ability to sort of suck up ideas that were developed elsewhere. And they find, yeah, there's a big effect on Patents that use words that are new to your region, but they've been around somewhere else. Like I could read that patent from Maine that said internet, and I could be like, oh, this internet's really cool. I'm going to patent a thing based on the internet in Des Moines. But it has no effect on patents that introduce totally new words that are not in the patent system elsewhere. And it has no effect on patents that don't include these new words that just include like words that have always been around. So if I'm in Des Moines, Iowa, probably like, you know, combine. We probably had patents for combine harvesters and tractors and stuff oh. going back to the 1800s. We didn't need a new library to tell us that these were a cool new technology. So that's kind of that's kind of cool and sort of mm-hmm. s- supports the idea that at least in the 70s, before uh, you know, you, people were actually reading this stuff and and learning from them. So that's our second study. The third one is about Wikipedia. It's not about patenting. It's about science. Uh, what's very clever about this study is the authors paid a bunch of grad students to write chemistry articles for Wikipedia. And then they posted half the articles, but they kept the other half back and they ran. So they have a random kind of control. And then they look to see what happens to scholarship around the articles that were posted to Wikipedia versus the ones that weren't. And how do you know if somebody's reading a Wikipedia article? They actually won't usually tell you. Like the scientist's writing their articles are not going to say like we read on wikipedia that graphene is important or something because they don't want to admit that they read wikipedia but they they can show that they cited the articles the academic articles that were cited by that wikipedia article at a much higher rate than the the articles that never got posted and they can look at the they can do another text analysis and they see like Similar language is used in the Wikipedia article and in the scientific articles uh, they get posted. So they do, they kind of do this experiment, and then they also do a thing where they uh, it's non experimental, but they can do like for all of chemistry because instead of comparing articles that were posted and never posted, they can compare like, well, this article got posted in the year two thousand ten. This one didn't get posted till twenty thirteen. So there's this gap where we can kind of sort of see what what the difference between those two. Subject areas were. So, anyway, it all suggests that scientists are reading Wikipedia and it's having a measurable, significant impact on kind of the kind of scholarship they do. So, all of this is to say it's kind of one of these obvious ideas, but it's sort of nice to have something more than just an anecdote behind it. Like you can see in the data when you give people access to knowledge, and at least in the USA, where they're you know there's support maybe these other bottlenecks about your ability to do research are sort of not
1: that severe hey it it, it helps I love it yeah talking about my biases um I think that I li- I like this finding a lot because um like going to going to corporate innovation a little bit there is an issue of accessing, insights knowledge that teams generate for other teams that's kind of where you know that's i feel like this this nicely supports that problem and we often find that in large corporations there are two teams that do the same thing
0: Mm -hmm.
1: in parallel like and they have no idea they're doing it yeah that number one knowledge is an asset a company's asset and not being able to to access this asset this intangible asset well i think is makes you not very competitive like you know pulls down your competitive advantage as as an organization um as a nation as we see as a as a you know as a global community and um yeah, working on solving that like pulling little insights out of powerpoints and you know and word documents and so on and making that systematic is a, is actually quite a passionate topic for me. Yeah,
0: yeah I mean uh, I have I I know people who view this as like a, a hidden upside of remote work is that um you have to send so many more emails and write everything down or maybe you're on Slack and so you have to uh, it's it's really painful. It's so much easier to just talk to people and like quickly solve the problem. But there's this potential upside, and this hasn't been studied. I don't know if this will actually pan out, that you, you've made a record of all the small talk, basically, uh, and all those ideas. And so, especially if it's in something like Slack, uh, where yeah. which ev- new employees can access, uh, potentially that can help solve problems. And I remember I talked once to a, a sort of scientist who said that, Knowledge management in labs was was a really big problem. Where, right, you could you could have sort of a PhD student waste a year of their life doing an experiment that somebody did three years ago that Perfect. they knew, that, that that didn't
1: work, and nobody remembered that or or so on. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, this this experiment um, looking for something, trying to it is an experiment in itself or a research piece trying to see if somebody already did that before. There's a there's a term uh for it it's called a picnic in the graveyard <laughs> I like yeah. yeah shout shout out to tristan if you coined it or somebody else I'm not sure that's where I know it from and that's what an innovation team should do right create and then storing it so the 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 best solution I know to make that more systematic and accessible are actually report cards. Yeah make it systematic. Yeah. People don't like to fill them out by the way. Uh surprise (laughs) back back to you yeah but that seems to be i i cannot imagine how it doesn't make you more competitive like how it doesn't give somebody in a competitive advantage Mm -hmm.
0: yeah yeah yeah, i totally agree Um, i think the, the part of the equation that is that gets hard to do over the long term is like how do you lay out the information in a way that people can find it without knowing exactly what they're looking for. Like yeah. it's easy to find stuff. If you know, like, I just need to search for Elias last name or, you know, like I know my conversation was with you, but if I, if I don't know that, if I'm like a new hire and I don't know that you're the person who has the information and you've written the Slack thing about it, coding it up in a way to help make it discoverable is, is a challenge, but yeah.
1: Yeah, hire a librarian for it, librarian for it, you know, having positions. I I really think some of some of the solutions, even like the data, there's a data entry problem to begin with. Like so you don't, you know, there's no way like teams are super resistant to this. And and part of it is that it makes teams more accountable. Mm-hmm. Like that that's a problem. But then it's also like annoying, right? <laughs> you don't want to yeah. punch in, you know, just don't want to do data entry, like no matter what it is. It's very different from designing something beautiful. Like a PowerPoint and then pitching it, there are at least some positive emotions associated with it. You know, making things look good. That's a problem. But then you know, nobody does other than me. Like, is excited about you know doing bookkeeping. Yeah. Nobody like very few people are excited about accounting. You outsource mm-hmm. it. You know, large organizations hire people. <laughs> right. you know, you've got you've got accountants for this. You've got bookkeepers for that. So I think that's very similar. Yeah. Um. Anyway, that's sort of my best shot here, how to solve this Mm -hmm. um, properly. And I think there is, you know, I think there's something to be said about sort of an innovation bookkeeper understanding the library.
0: Awesome, yeah.
1: The accessibility of knowledge makes at least communities more innovative.
0: Mm -hmm. I think it just is sort of an, it proves that You might have said, for example, a counter story would be that learning about past other people's attempts, you could have a theory that that's actually bad because it dissuades you from trying things, right? Like, oh, it's already been done. Mm -hmm. Um, And this kind of shows, well, maybe that's true. But if it is, the countervailing effects are strong enough that it's a net positive, right? Like just having all this information. Yeah. So Matt,
1: you have to go in a moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've got a head but I mean I think I would just say that the the whole idea that information and providing it freely is is valuable is like also a motivating thing for myself and why I run this like website cuz I felt like there was all this really interesting work being done by the academics kind of about innovation but at least when I started writing it I didn't feel like there was any like popular science book that was kind of talking about this work or or and no one was also like pulling these threads together a lot of time. Like you might get an interview about an individual who did a cool study, but you don't necessarily see if you're outside academia that there's that this is echoing related stuff. So you can sort of be more confident anyway. So that's what I. That's what motivated me to start the project. I think also uh, going back to our first topic, I was kind of motivated because I was. Not just in a normal economics department. I was in the agricultural entrepreneurship initiative in my first academic job, Uh, and so I was surrounded by all these entrepreneurs. And so I think that maybe affected a little bit like uh, the value of doing something a little bit different that it wasn't being done. Who knows? But uh, well, entrepreneurship
1: is contagious, right? Yeah, Yeah. exactly.
0: I I caught the bug (laughs) from them. I'm not saying I'm an entrepreneur, but uh, you know, I did start something that was a little bit different uh, than what everybody else was doing. So there we go. I'll say that for myself
1: new things under the sun that's your that's your website that's right.com new things under the sun dot com yeah it's 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 a real pleasure going through it and your output is is quite amazing by the way it's uh it's pretty humbling like given that you have to do a lot of research even you know writing this that's you know and yeah how do you do that thanks
0: i mean thanks uh I couldn't do it if it was it's not like a hobby project it's like uh a part-time job like I I have when I was at acad- in uh, at Iowa State University I had grant support so I worked 25% time on that project and uh I got support later from uh Open Philanthropy and mm. I I worked on it sort of even more uh, at uh, the Institute for Progress and now um in my current position uh it's also like a third of what i do with my time so uh it's not just like a, a thing i do on nights and weekends or something it's like uh, it's I, I consider it like a professional thing comparable to like the amount of time an academic would spend doing like their own research or something so
1: yeah it makes me feel a lot better thank you
0: no problem <laughs>
1: yeah it's good to set expectations
0: appropriately yeah uh.
1: No, that's great. Thank you for doing that. And yeah, I feel like maybe, you know, maybe we do another, maybe we just do another session at some point. Like there's so much to go through and, you know, if we can help spread the word. Sure. Anytime. I, like you said, I think we like scratched the
0: surface. Like there's yeah. like, I've been doing it for years too. So there's like a lot of stuff on there that we could talk about.
1: Yeah. And thank you. It's it's really awesome listening to you and um, yeah, putting it out there. Yeah, it has been really, really interesting. Thank you
0: no sweat thank thanks you. for having me on uh and yeah <laughs> thank you i don't know how to i don't know how to, what the wrap-up thing is no we just
1: we just leave this in we just leave this in okay. and like uh, take it as a lesson i need to learn how to wrap this up better this is yep. my fault yeah share the failure I
0: will, I will wrap it up to say i've got to go pick my son up to to so he can practice the piano before his sisters get home which is the real truth Thank you so
1: much. (laughs) Thank you too.